Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Lucy Pasha Robinson, and welcome to the final episode of this season of Chronic which has absolutely flown by, as I'm sure you'll agree. And what better way to wrap up this series than by confronting my own personal nemesis? Yes, today we're finally going to be talking about endometriosis, a disease that causes tissue similar to the lining of the womb to grow in other places, such as the ovaries and fallopian tubes. Now, as this is the last episode, I wanted to share a bit about my own chronic journey. I was diagnosed with endo in 2014 after what felt like a lifetime of living with very challenging symptoms that had been repeatedly dismissed by doctors as hypochondria, IBS, stress, or just plain bad luck. Since 2015, I've had countless exploratory tests, three surgeries, and two rounds of chemically induced menopause. But above and beyond the medical interventions, Endometriosis has had a serious impact on the way I've been able to live my life, from the way I can socialise and work to my relationships. Now, endometriosis is so often thought of as just bad periods, but its impact can be absolutely devastating and extremely far-reaching, causing chronic pelvic pain, fatigue, painful sex, bowel symptoms, mental health issues such as anxiety and depression, and many more, as this week's expert panel know all too well. I'm so excited to be joined today by these hugely knowledgeable women. Gabrielle Jackson is news editor at Guardian Australia and author of Pain and Prejudice. Lucia Osborne Crowley is a freelance journalist and author. And Fiona Timber is founder of Endo So Black, a social community highlighting the experiences of black women with endometriosis. Hello and welcome, ladies. Hi. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. What an absolute treat to be in such good company for our final episode. I want to jump straight in with some of the big questions around endometriosis, because I feel like in recent years, there's been a lot of awareness of what the disease might be. There's a little bit more understanding of what the term means. But I still feel constantly perplexed about why we know so little about endometriosis? Why do we know so little about the causes of it? Why do we know so little about the implications of it? Gabrielle, you've written about this extensively in your excellent book, Pain and Prejudice. Tell us some of the top level reasons why. Um, Yeah, it's just a fact that medicine does not know much about female biology. So therefore, any disease that predominantly or mainly affects women or people with a uterus, there is just not that knowledge there. They just don't know. And I think one of the other aspects of endometriosis, which is a good and a bad, is that there is this physical aspect to endometriosis, right? So doctors can see it. They can see the lesions in a microscope and they can chop it out and that makes doctors very happy. But the bad thing about that is that there is very little correlation between the severity of the physical disease and the severity of the symptoms. And there's this whole nervous system aspect which is present in all chronic pain conditions or at least in most of the prevalent uh, chronic pain conditions that mainly affect women that we medicine just hasn't understood hasn't studied properly and doesn't know how to deal with and that's the aspect of endometriosis that people still don't understand and that's why you see people having surgery after surgery after surgery well if the first three didn't work the fifth and the sixth and the eleventh are not going to help you and we need to stop being so focused on the lesions. So essentially for listeners who don't know endometriosis can be categorized from stage one to four. Stage one is I suppose in physical medical terms is seen as the least severe versus stage four which is seen as the most widespread but Gabrielle as you rightly say that doesn't necessarily correlate with levels of pain experienced by the sufferer. Lucia You've had tons of surgeries. What are some of the consequences of 
this lack of knowledge that we know about endometriosis? Well, I think endometriosis lives in a really dangerous kind of Venn diagram. It's a women's health condition, which, as Gabrielle said, we know less about. And it's also a chronic condition, which medicine is not particularly good at understanding or treating either. And also it could be an autoimmune condition. And this is something that doctors are still working out. So, for example, there's there's a theory in terms of the lesions and the stages that it's not actually about how many lesions there are or how many damaged cells there are, but about how your immune system responds to those lesions. If that is the case, and this is about our bodies trying to fight off what it sees as foreign tissue, then surgery after surgery is never going to be helpful. The surgeries could actually be making the symptoms much worse and subjecting it to what is, you know, medical trauma and what is experienced by the body as medical trauma. And because we don't know that, we are potentially handing out a treatment that is so damaging. And Lucia, how many surgeries have you had? Seven. Yeah. Wow. I spoke to an expert recently who said that the surgeries are as difficult as removing gynecological cancers. Yeah, so so the... The problem is any gynecologist can operate on endometriosis and they don't have to excise it. They can laser it off. They can do all sorts of things to it, which the evidence shows is not effective. But the people who train for years and years in understanding what endometriosis looks like, who can identify it in all its different forms and shapes and looks that it has in the human body and who train, who do get extra qualifications to do this advanced laparoscopic excision surgery, don't get paid any differently to the people who have no idea what endo is and they go in and laser a few laser a few things off. So it's not that doctors aren't trained. There are specially highly qualified doctors and there is evidence that deeply infiltrating endometriosis where all the organs are stuck together and you do get a skilled surgeon to remove that, there is some benefit to the patient. But we are allowing surgeons to do pretty useless surgeries time after time after time on women and other people with uterus and there's no there's no distinction between that that's especially bad in the united states because of the way their health system works but it happens in the united kingdom and australia as well mm. and it's so hard as a newly diagnosed person that is just coming to terms with with understanding what the treatment options are, are available to you to know that ablation is going to be potentially damaging and isn't going to be helpful. It's so hard to know what Mm. those correct pathways are. Um, I want to bring in Fiona here. We so often hear, this isn't at all a slight to Lucia or Gabrielle, but we so often hear from white women when we're talking about endometriosis and women's health. What specific barriers do women of colour and black women face in, in being treated effectively for endometriosis? Oh, that's a good question. I don't even know where to start with that. It's a big question, um, I'm aware. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's a huge question. I think, um, so when it comes to endometriosis, the first thing is, like, it was historically referred to as the white women's disease. That was the diagnosis approach that a lot of doctors took for years. And we're not talking, you know, hundreds of years ago or or more than 50 years ago. Like, this is all still relatively recent. In fact, just... Just over the weekend, quite a few endometriosis specialist centers in the States and New York was one of them were called out as in their descriptive of what the symptoms are and what the indicators are for endometriosis. They had um, blonde or brunette hair and white women as their descriptives. So you can go on Instagram and see that a lot of like black women in the endometriosis community called them out and they apologized for our misunderstanding of their description and changed it but so it's still something that if you come if you go to the doctors as a black woman and and don't forget we know that it you know on average it takes 10 years now to be diagnosed and then you factor into race where actually doctors won't even consider that something that you could have because it's something that only presents in white women and you're in a pretty bad state I think on top of that you know you've got the I I really hate the word microaggression because it's not micro to the person on the receiving end of it. But you have the the historic beliefs that black women are stronger. 
and so more tolerant to pain or can or can pe- persevere through it. You've also got the the misconceptions that black women are more promiscuous. So historically, if you went to the doctors and you complain of any type of pelvic pains, the first thing consideration is, well, it must be a sexual infection. So let's consider PID. And so most black women would be t- tested for that before there's any considerations. And then you've also got the, the whole fibroids factor. So when you factor in that black women are more likely to have fibroids, that's something that can easily explain away the pain. And there we go. We've got a diagnosis and we've told you what it could be. Um, your journey stops then because they've given you what you need, which is a diagnosis. Told you you can have an operation, but maybe it's too small. But yeah, you might can be in a lot of pain and might have heavy periods. So here's some methanamic acid. Be on your way. So there's quite a few different things that go into it. Yeah, absolutely. And so important, I think, the work that you're doing, Fiona, to raise awareness of that, because even in like very high profile campaigns, like the BBC do a lot of work, don't they? Obviously, The Guardian as well um, in in sort of endometriosis awareness. But I'm always struck that their panels are very often all white, Yeah, which I don't think at all is representative of the waiting room, frankly, yeah. the people that you see waiting for treatment who are going to see the doctors there. So that's really important. So one thing I want to get onto is just how far reaching an endometriosis diagnosis can be. So often any kind of talk of a gynecological condition is wrapped up in period pain. We talk about how it's, it causes painful cramps and I don't know, maybe you need to stay off work for a couple of days with a hot water bottle over your period. But in my experience, endometriosis is nothing like that it's so much further reaching all-encompassing it it affects me basically every day throughout the month this year the BBC conducted a huge study um, into experiences of endometriosis and they found half of endo sufferers had suicidal thoughts as a result of chronic pain and we know endometriosis sufferers are more likely to leave the workforce to suffer from anxiety and depression We know the symptoms can create hugely challenging circumstances for relationships. Fiona, let me come back to you. How does living with endo affect your day to day? It's it's been a really weird journey for me because um, I'm I'm still struggling to to know the answer as to whether or not endometriosis is just something that gets worse as you get older, because that's certainly the way that it feels. It was awful before when I was younger, but it was very much restricted to around my period. So the, the pain was intense, but it was around my period. I knew how to plan around that. And what I found as I got older and also subsequent operations, so I think this goes to both Lucia and Gabrielle's points that operations don't necessarily help, um, is that the pain has become... It, it it's become a, a part of my everyday life. So when I get up in the morning, my body hurts, like my lower back is painful. If I try to walk down my right leg, I get shooting pains then that shoot up as well. If I sit in a certain position, then it's like someone is reaching their fists through my vagina and like grabbing onto like various parts of me. Sometimes it hurts just to breathe which can sound ridiculous and if you have a good day and I always make the mistake of getting too excited if I have a good day and and by excited I mean like I'll go to the supermarkets and do my own shopping or I'll cook some food because I'm like yes I can do some batch cooking today and then the next day I wake up in agony full of regret how it's changed my life is having to have uncomfortable conversations. So they're no longer uncomfortable for me because this is my life, but they're certainly uncomfortable for, I mean, my male line managers who I have had to have this conversation with all of them and, you know, upskill them into the world of, of, of periods and what, what endometriosis is and how the pain goes beyond just my period and sinking them into my cycle to let them know when I definitely will be off work or when I'll need to work from home um, and having that flexibility and also my friends and my friends and family my friends we make plans and they know that it's a 25% chance that I'll attend like we, we can say yes but who knows if I'm on the day or I'll be able to so um yeah it, it's had quite a far-reaching impact mm. on me Gabrielle, does that resonate with you? You're not Yeah, it sure does. I mean, I think for me, one of the most powerful things to happen on my, you know, hate to use the word, but journey <laughs> uh, was was realizing that all the things that were wrong with me 
were all related to endometriosis. And I wrote about this in The Guardian, so you may have read it, but I didn't know that my back pain and my that shooting pain down the front of my leg and the fatigue and the brain fog and the dizzy spells and the poor sleep and the anxiety, I didn't know they were all related to endometriosis. I just thought I was a hypochondriac. So actually finding that out, I just, I cry, I cannot tell you I cried for hours because it's so confronting to believe something about yourself which is really negative and then to realise that it's not even true, that I wasn't a weak and terrible and hopeless person, that I just didn't really understand the disease I had. And I've really, you know, understanding what the disease is and that it's not just bad period pain, that it's all these other things like, as I said, the, the back pain and the leg pain and stuff, which is muscular, and a pelvic physiotherapy has helped me, has changed my life actually with that pain. And regular yoga, even if it is the kind of easiest yoga in the whole world, just moving my legs and, and stretching those back muscles is just, you know, so helpful. But also understanding that the sleep and the depression and the anxiety and the dizzy spells, all these things are related. And I've been able to really improve my life like I've accepted that I'm not gonna be like my best friend and just have boundless energy and I you know I'm happy with the way I live but um I definitely can manage my life so much better understanding the disease I had instead of just thinking it was a random collection of symptoms and I was just hopeless at coping with life so I think that has been a really powerful thing for me and I think the mental health aspect not just of endometriosis but of all chronic pain is really really undervalued and I think now we're starting to recognize that it has to be treated as part of the disease itself. Definitely I think what you say about hypochondria as well and like unpicking some of those ideas that you have about yourself is really difficult after you've internalized so much sort of self-hatred and negative self-talk that's definitely been a big part of my journey we'll continue to call it a journey while hating the word <laughs> I don't have an alternative Lucia what have been some of the consequences for you well I completely resonate um with what both of you have said and I think these are the things that I get I didn't even know even 12 months ago two years ago you know um that it is a whole body disease in a very, very real sense. And I genuinely didn't know that. And as you said, Gabrielle, I was having all of these other symptoms and I was convincing myself not to see a doctor because of this constant messaging that I was getting from doctors that, that was kind of like, oh, another thing. Oh, there's another thing. You know, what, mm, what's wrong back now? Again. Back, back again, again. Are we? Exactly. Yeah. And it is so helpful to understand that all of those symptoms are not me being bad at being healthy or me overreacting to pains that everybody has. But in fact, they're all symptoms of the same disease. And Fiona, your account, you post about this on your account quite a lot. And I find that so helpful to have this reminder that it affects your whole body. So I have found very much the same that, that it has never been isolated to around my period. As you said, Fiona, mine is also certainly getting worse and getting more widespread around my body as I get older. You know, I'm in pelvic pain every single day. So I, I can't, there is no version of my life that doesn't have that in it. So I've had to make adjustments around that for everything, work and friends and especially relationships. Because the disease is so misunderstood, when you tell people that you have it, it's very hard to get people to understand what that means for your everyday life, what that means about you as a friend or a partner or or a carer or anything. Um, and so, yeah, I found that really difficult, um, but it, it becomes much easier the more I understand and the more I try and teach my own doctors about the fact that all these symptoms are connected. And I think I find it so often with medicine, there are just these these little things that are overlooked that could improve patient care so much. 
Yeah. Like just a little bit of an understanding of the interconnectedness of this symptomology, just to be able to reassure patients that these things are connected and, and to make us feel a bit less crazy. But, and it's so hard to come across a doctor that has that level of understanding, I've, in my experience, unless you seek them out. You've got to really do your research and be the expert patient in finding those people that do know what they're talking about. As uh, Gabrielle, you definitely touched on earlier. One of the, the parts around the conversation around endometriosis that I want to get into is fertility. In my experience, doctors have been much more concerned about preserving my fertility than managing my pain. And as a young woman, when I was when I was first diagnosed, when I was 23, 24, I just really wanted to be able to live a normal life. I wasn't thinking about the future. I just wanted to be able to get out of bed in the morning. I wanted to be able to go to work. I, I wanted to be able to have a normal social life without living in sort of crippling pain all the time. And it very much felt like the treatment options available to me were sort of watered down in case they could potentially impact my fertility. Obviously, a huge part of the problem of that is this systemic tendency to dismiss women's pain anyway. Do you think we need to change the emphasis on the conversation around endometriosis away from fertility? Whoever wants to jump in. I can jump in. So there's been research in Australia that shows that doctors do prioritise fertility ahead of all other symptoms, even if the woman is not telling them that that's her priority. They make that decision. And this is part of the patriarchal society we live in. A woman's ability to give birth affects other people. It affects men. And therefore, they care about it. That has been the tradition throughout the history of medicine. And it's not that all doctors are bad and they only care about your fertility. It's just that's how they've been trained, that a fertility is the most important thing a woman can have. It is her gift, my God. And so they prioritise it ahead of everything else thinking that that's their responsibility, really. And I think that in a lot of countries and a lot of places in all countries, really, the only time endometriosis is found is when there's fertility issues and suddenly it's worth investigating because all those other complaints about pain and, you know, being tired and headaches and whatever, that's just part of being a woman, you know, being a hysterical woman. And it's, it's about giving women agency, it's about allowing women to say what is her priority and to have that respected. Um, I think it's um, yeah, twofold. Ahead. So I, I, I always think about things that I wish the doctor had told me. There were a lot of doctors that were saying you can't do this or you shouldn't have this type of treatment because you need to think about kids. Well, what, what are you thinking about kids? But then I also wish that there was a conversation that was like, right, if you have a surgery, this will impact your fertility. That wasn't a conversation that I ever had until I started to think about my fertility, being older and in my mid-30s now. And I was like, okay, what does this look like for me? And going to see fertility experts and being told, oh, the reason why you have such low numbers, part of that is because of the surgery that took place and the impact that that has on, on ovarian reserves. And it's like, wow, that's not something I knew, which is interesting because the doctors were so intent on preserving my fertility by preventing me from getting medical treatment from my parents but at no point did they mention this other side of things so I think like Gabrielle's point was really spot on it's about the agency of women and I think doctors need to be able to give us all of the information and allow us to make a decision tell young women have you thought about getting your eggs frozen that's something you can plan and save for if it's not incorporated into your medical costs right now if you don't have NHS that will allow for that that's something you can think about alongside these things. If you want to focus on fertility, do that and then still treat us for our pain. And it means that you, you end up either, I think, taking really extreme actions because you have a doctor that is only for... When I was younger, I couldn't have cared. I, and to be fair, I still don't know if I want kids, but I definitely didn't care when I was younger. And if my mum had allowed me, I would have found a doctor that gave me a hysterectomy because I was just like, I just want my whole womb out. And part of that, though, was a reaction to doctors not listening and harping on about fertility and not giving me medical treatment that I needed. And so I think you end up having really extreme reactions to, to try and grab some of that control over your own body and reassert control. Mm. 
that's why I find anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I, sh- I should say that the gynecologist I found after I went to that conference where I learned all these things was really great. And he also told me that because the endometriosis was so severe on my ovaries that I might lose my ovaries or even if I don't, just the operation would reduce my fertility. So he suggested I freeze eggs before the surgery, which I did. And that was my decision. But it was a part of telling me everything, your back pain, your fatigue, your dizzy spells, your leg pain. These are all part of endometriosis. And what I, how I operate on you to fix it is going to affect your fertility. So yeah, you're so, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. You, you have to be told the whole picture and then you decide. And and for example, I did, I froze my eggs. I then went and had a couple of rounds of IVF. And after I'd had three failed implantations, he said, I said, what do you think I should do? And he said, well, you know, this is a different answer to every patient. And I know you, you have a really good career. You love your job. I don't think you should continue. It's really hard. And I don't get the impression that you being a mother is the be all and end all for you. But the fact that he'd really thought about it, and he even told me he'd talked to his wife about it, (laughs) who was also a gynecologist. And they had just, they thought that, you know, that's the model of the doctor that we want and need. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that with us, Gabrielle. Lucia, I want to come to you now. Gabrielle touched on it earlier. Is this just sexism being played out in the doctor's room how can we change this? Like, How important is advocacy? Is anyone even listening? It is so important to keep talking about this because I know so many women, myself included, who at 2021 20, were just told either get pregnant now and have a baby because that is, we think that's anecdotally a miracle cure, no evidence, and also is a preposterous treatment plan. It's <laughs> insulting. It makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> and also, you know, I remember feeling this so, so strongly when my male gynecologist told me this at 20. I thought, you know, I don't think that I want to be a mother at any point in my life. I definitely didn't think I wanted to then. And also I was very sick and chronic pain. Uh, you know, if you allow pain to be untreated for a certain amount of time, it becomes chronic. It becomes its own condition. You will continue to feel pain regardless of whether there's tissue damage and for me personally, I've experienced so much pain over the last 12 years that I would be very afraid of pregnancy at this point in my life in a way that I wouldn't if I didn't have such an agonising relationship with my body and with pelvic pain. I, I'd just like to double down on the point that you said around just being scared of pain mm. and being scared of that whole process because that's so true. Like, I dallied had a dalliance with the IVF process and whether or not I was going to freeze my eggs and just just two months ago I had a last consultation and the thing that stopped me um if I'm being really honest was when the consultant listed the hormones that I would need to take and the potential side effects and when I think about the amount of pain I'm already in and when I think about the way my body has previously reacted to contraceptives that have been forced on me as a way of dealing with endometriosis, the rejection of the concept that they have caused my body more pain, that terrified me. And I was like, actually, that's not something I want to do. And, and that, that's an aside from the huge consideration of like, well, I can freeze my eggs for the possibility that one day I will be well enough to be able to have a child. Because like Lucia said, I'm in pain every day. There are so many, so many reasons why it's yeah, such a terrible idea. It's such a redundant point, isn't it? Like <laughs> both of your experiences totally resonate. When I was diagnosed, that was definitely something that, that was brought up repeatedly. And that was, there were so many considerations that made that such a terrible, terrible idea. So I want to get onto the true sort of cost of endometriosis. I mentioned earlier that endometriosis sufferers are more likely to leave the workforce. There have definitely been periods where I've thought I'd have to give up my job. The weight of managing my health, pressures of working in an office environment with little flexibility have just felt totally unsustainable at times. I'm I'm definitely not ashamed to say I've had periods of sick leave. I've had to remove myself from that and focus on my health and then return. And I've been able to do that because of the workers' rights that we have and the protections that, that are in place that allow 
people with living with disabilities to do that. So I want to ask all of you, has endo got in the way of your work, your careers, your ambition? Absolutely. This is such an important question because it is one of those conditions that I have found affects everything about my career in terms of when and how I can show up, how much I can concentrate. There's all these great studies about the way pain uses up so much of your brain that, you know, I don't even know what my brain might be able to do if I had a pain-free day. You know, I don't know what I could come up with if I could properly focus. And as you said, you know, I've taken time out of work, kind of in and out of hospital, and that has meant leaving jobs. And I've had to leave wonderful teams and wonderful jobs just because I could not cope. But the other thing I want to say about that is that in terms of the actual cost financially, I'm very, very lucky in that I've lived in two countries that have good healthcare systems and have been in jobs that give me sick leave. There are so many people who are not in that position, who don't have statutory sick pay, who don't have jobs where they can work from home and have times when they can't be there. Mm. And Gabrielle, you've written about, uh, in Pain and Prejudice, you touch on the cost of the economy. Yeah, it's a huge cost to the economy. There's so much spent on treatment after treatment. I mean, just the money that's spent on useless second-rate surgeries, for one, is a factor. But there's also a huge cost to the individual. You know, I spent everything I ever saved on my health. And also the other thing that a lot of people with endo do is that they try everything. I have tried every crazy flipping wellness fad going around, I'm not ashamed to say, because when you're desperate, you will try anything. And there are just little things like that that we pay for all the time that really add up. And the people who don't have a job where they earn enough money to pay for those things really suffer. And they often end up out of a job altogether. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I I wanted to say that because I think one of the things that I've discovered through the community that has been incredibly supportive on Instagram is that there are a lot of Black women in the UK who work in jobs that are zero-hour contracts. And if they have to take time off work, they don't get paid. They don't get, and statutory sick pay, like we talk about it, like, yay, statutory sick pay. When was the last time anybody looked at that? Work, my work gives me sick pay, so that's great. When my sick pay ran out through work and I was on statutory sick pay, it was like 20 pounds a day or something ridiculous like that. I, I was like, what, what, are, what is one meant to do with this? And so, <laughs> like, it, and, and so I think um, it's just really important to, to talk about that because when we talk about, like, we're, we've got the NHS and we've got, like, you know, workers' rights and all of those things, they apply to a limited extent. And so I just think it's really important to, to, to flag that and to discuss that because not everyone in the UK and in Australia is in the same position. Mm-hmm. Fiona, you made a really good point. It sort of creates a hierarchy of care, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Because... It means that people on lower incomes, which tend to be women of colour, don't have access to the same treatment, which which is a major scandal. I definitely think more holistic options need to be made available on the NHS. Gabrielle, in 2015, The Guardian ran a big investigation into endometriosis, which I remember seeing on the front page and thinking, this is absolutely incredible. This is like a watershed moment, finally, endometriosis is going to be recognised for what it is. And we're talking about what it's like to actually live with this. How amazing. Now we're in 2020. We're going to be nearly 2021 by the time this comes out. While it does feel like there's been this boom in awareness, I don't feel like the conversation has moved on that much since 2015. Is that fair to say? I think it's definitely fair to say. I will say that that investigation was the thrill of my career. I've got I, I never thought I could get endometriosis onto the front page of The Guardian, but, you know, I feel like having two female editors really helped. And it changed the conversation in Australia, definitely. But as you say, the understanding of what it is has not really moved on. And I think that's partly because of medical knowledge, Focusing on endometriosis as one thing and as this physical disease about period pain is really stopping the conversation from moving on to where I think it needs to go. 
Lucia, you wrote an incredible piece recently for Refinery29, kind of on this question, on the bigger questions around endometriosis. What were some of the key findings in your research for that piece in terms of how we're talking about endometriosis at the moment and where we need to go? Yeah, well, one of the things that I found really interesting about researching that piece was the specialist that I spoke to who, as I kind of mentioned earlier, advocating for endometriosis to be treated in the same category as gynecological cancers. And they say that it has the same effect on patients' quality of life as cancer. Um, It has the same financial cost as cancer. And more and more, we're thinking about it as involving all the different systems of the body. And so he said to me, very, very straightforwardly, this should be treated like cancer. It should be treated with the same degree of specialty and should be thought of as serious. And then also a lot of the doctors brought up this idea that that they were increasingly seeing it as an autoimmune disease. That has so many implications for how we treat it. And one of those things, for example, that just in, in terms of the year that we're living in, this, this doctor said to me, that it could be that every person who suffers with endometriosis is in fact a clinically extremely vulnerable COVID-19 patient. So I do think the conversations become louder. I think that's great. But I think that there is a depth to it that, as you said, Lucy, hasn't changed that much in the last five years. And the other thing that I found with that piece is that all the doctors I spoke to had so many things to tell me. You know, there were just, there are so many follow-up pieces that have come out of that And I think we do need more coverage of the more in-depth stuff that could actually change people's understanding a bit in a meaningful way. Mm, I agree. And I I don't know what it's like in the UK, but in Australia, there's been all these celebrity people with endometriosis and they have really hindered the conversation, I think, because all they do is say, oh, I'm going in for my 12th surgery. Oh, the only way to treat this disease is by having surgery every two years. And they're not talking about the other symptoms and the whole of body and the autoimmune aspect. They're not talking about any of these things. And I think this isn't actually helping. I think Lena Dunham has actually done a bit of a better job in trying to explain the complexities. I'd massively disagree, like just on the Lena Dunham. Like I think it's a personal, a very personal, um, strong feeling that I have, partly because she was involved in my my journey, my discovery, because I remember, like, so vividly remember, I think it was in 2015, reading an article, the Metro did, I think she was meant to go to the Met Ball Gala, she didn't because she had an endo flare up, and they wrote about it, and in describing the symptoms, I was like, oh my god, I was on the tube, and I was like, this is it, this is, this is, this is what I've been describing, and I remember calling my mum in tears, and I was like, yay, Lena Dunham, you are, like, so amazing, and then, like, a year or two later, like I did some research and I already knew that hysterectomy was not like the, the thing that cures you. And she was like, cool, my doctor's so amazing. He's found a cure. This is what I'm going to do and did that. And then was like, I'm cured. And then like a few years later, not to as much press. Oh, it didn't work. And that's something that really bothered me because the announcement of this cure and especially with me being someone who had seen her as advocating and like this is where I can get information from and then to 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 so publicly be wrong but really firm and and uh, as she likes to be and stand committed to that to that wrongness I've just found it really problematic I think she did yeah. hedge it in very much like this is right for me this isn't right for everyone but but I do agree with the point you're making Fiona that that celebrities talking about their treatment options, their treatment pathways can have massive consequences on how we view the disease and how other sufferers kind of pursue treatment. And I agree, Fiona, when she started talking about hysterectomy, I really, I sort of let out a bit of a groan, to be honest, that, oh, we're talking about hysterectomy again, as if this is a cure for endometriosis, when we know, we know now it's not. And for so long, women have been through these terribly radical surgeries with huge complications that don't end up helping their pain. So yeah, I hear you. Fiona, I want to come back to you. You created Endo So Black this year, a huge year, obviously, in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement. 
was that part of the reason why you felt specifically you really needed to talk about black women's experiences of this? Is that, is that part of the impulse that made you made you create the account? Yeah, it was kind of searching. So I hadn't come across other black women with the illness, which is crazy when you know that one in 10 women have endometriosis. It was really isolating for me going to or trying to find support in communities where I often didn't see anybody that looked like me or anyone that was different. And I guess I was really searching for a safe space. After everything that's happened this year, I think something that became really important for me was finding those safe spaces. I think growing up in the UK, you know, black people represent 3% of the population. So you're used to going everywhere and and, and not seeing yourself, um, especially in the workforce. It, when you live in a big city, that's not the case. Like you forget that 3%, that can't be right. Are you sure it's not 50%? And it's it's crazy how highly concentrated it is in the cities. But it was just really important, especially because you're dealing with something so vulnerable. And I think the conversations, you get the nuance because the reception and the treatment that you get from doctors is different. What's really hard is when you try to express that and people tell you that's not to do with racism. That's just because you're a woman or like that's just that's the nature of endometriosis. When you know through your experiences when something has been dismissed based on race or sex like I live as a black woman I understand the experiences of women and the sexism and I and I know for example if a man talks over me on my work calls which I find incredibly frustrated I don't put that down to race I know that's because of my gender but I also know when I'm arguing for a point and you know I'm told to like you know, not be so aggressive next time. That's not because I'm a woman. That's because I'm a black woman. Um, and so it was just really important for me to try and create a space where those conversations can be had, but also awareness can be shared because I think I shied away from a lot of communities because I didn't see a face. And the thing that I found in starting it is there are so many black young girls out there that are like, oh, thank you. I didn't know. So I, I guess the other side of that is, as I said, my mum suspected she has it only because of what I've gone through and me talking about it. When I was younger and fainting in school from period, she was like, oh, I used to faint as well. That's you're just like your mother. Like, how is that not alarming? But I think black women, we're taught to be strong, silent and stoic. And you don't speak about private, personal things. When I started, my mum was like, are you sure you want to do that? You're putting your business out there because in our community, that's just not something that you do. And so that also is a, creates, you know, you go into a community, a support group and you're isolated because we don't do that. And so I wanted to create a space to start doing that where black women can feel that they can share. It's OK to talk about these things. And in doing that, you, you start to realise, actually, this is something I've experienced and can get help for. This isn't the way that life should be. I, I really like the hashtag you use as well. Endo looks like me. This isn't just a white middle class disease we really need to bring in more conversations around intersectionality I suppose when yeah, when yeah. we're talking about women's health in general you know doctors often say oh but all my patients are white well do you know how hard it is to get a diagnosis so when they eventually get to your rooms yeah they might all be white because you have to be fairly wealthy and privileged to be able to doctor shop enough to get the diagnosis in the first place. And I think that's something that is really, really, at least in Australia, not um, taken into account enough. It's, it's, really, it's really hard, actually. So I only got diagnosed because I went, I, I didn't go private because my work allowed me to have private healthcare. So I couldn't afford private healthcare. It was work. And that was after years of going to the doctors and being dismissed. And you reach a stage where you touched on it before, Gabrielle, you really question your mental health. Like, you, I, is there something wrong with me? Do I just enjoy the attention? Like, the doctors are constantly telling me there's nothing wrong with me, but I am in pain. Like, I am an anomaly. Like, and, and that's, you know, not even delving into the whole, like, I just want this to end and the path that that takes you on. So I went private, had my diagnosis. Three, two years later, my end absolutely returned, even worse. And it took me seeing five different private doctors before somebody believed me. Private doctors from, from centres of excellence, that's what we put, like, the endometriosis specialists, 
five doctors, each one dismissing me, the fourth one telling me that I, looking at my file and telling me that I was doctor shopping and I I was broken. Oh, I'm going to try not to cry. I brought, took my mum with me and she had to advocate for me to get that fifth referral for a doctor to confirm that I had endometriosis. That's the experience of being a black woman suffering in the UK, going through medical healthcare, and it's not unique to me. So it, it is important to have these conversations and to just share awareness of that. Sorry. I'm so sorry. It's shit. I think it's I think, completely fair I that you're crying. So, I hope a doctor listens to this. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And sees the effect they have on people. That's it. It speaks to yeah. the, the impact, the real life impact of not being believed. I think the other thing is you're not allowed to be in pain. So I think one of the things that I find really interesting is the misconception that black women are strong so can go through it. But, but you're also raised in a society where you have to be strong and go through it. And that then doesn't correlate. So when you hear people talking about, I can't work and I can't do these things, you kind of don't have room to not be able to do those things and not exist. If you have a family or if your bills need to get paid, and that's the other thing that I found really interesting and mind-blowing with some of the women that I speak to on Instagram is the pain that they experience and they are still going to work and suffering through their pain which means that you look at these other, the things that people are saying and you think, well, that's not me because I'm still going to work, so it can't be that. And it can. Or doctors say, well, you're still going to work, so it can't be that bad. But it is. And so it's just, I think, it's worth talking about those things. Absolutely. So I want to talk about where we go from here. What needs to change for this story to be moving in the right direction? I feel like I always start. <laughs> I'm the annoying person who won't stop talking. But, you know, like there was a time when breast cancer was a white woman's disease. It was a career woman's disease. It was only something that happened to rich white ladies. And that changed because women lobbied they raised their own funds, they demanded a say in the research that was commissioned and published. And now, you know, we have so much more knowledge of breast cancer and so much better survival rates. One problem, I think, with endometriosis and other chronic pain conditions is that a lot of the women who survived breast cancer were young and then they returned to full health. And they had a lot of energy. And we're asking people who put everything they can into earning enough money to stay as well as they can. And not many of us have enough energy to do the side work and the huge amounts of work and energy it takes to lobby for change. And that's why we need, you know, and I'll, I'll use another word I hate, but a good one, allies. We really need other people to stand alongside us and do and be part of this fight. And we need more research and that takes money and politicians have to think there's a vote in it. And, um, you know, that's work. That's really hard work. And, you know, who's going to do it? I mean, we're doing it because we have the platforms to do it. So that's great. But I know that the people I ask often I just feel bad because I know I'm asking them to do things in their spare time and it's so hard. So I really struggle with that. I don't know if any of you guys have any other ideas. I think your point about funding and research is so, so important. But how do we how do we push for that? How do we push for, for more research into this, better research? Because it's not just the, the quantity, it's also the quality, right? Because there's been some yeah. absolutely terrible, terrible yeah. research done into this, like impacts on uh, male partners' sex lives and, <laughs> and exactly rating oh, your God. attractiveness. I think a lot of that has to be about kind of getting together a bigger and deeper wealth of public knowledge about the disease 
so that when it comes to inquiries and when the government says, what research do you want? Uh, we kind of, everyone has an idea of, of what to put forward and how this, what kind of research we need to be funding. And so I, I think one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot recently is about journalism and how to cover this kind of thing. And firstly, I do still think there needs to be more, but more importantly, much broader range of coverage and kind of journalists who will tap into online chronic illness communities, look for people from, from different backgrounds to speak to, in, to have their voices in stories and talk about symptoms and talk about everyday life and have, you know, editors reaching out to black women with endometriosis to commission them over white women to write stories about this. You know, we, and I think, I think the conversation in the media is still, I know that it's gotten so much better, but every, every day I think that it's still failing in really, really significant ways. And I think addressing that is a really good way of moving towards research that's, you know, funded and that is actually looking at the, the things that impact our lives and doctors being better informed and medical training. I think all of that starts with having much better coverage of the, of the disease. I really think it's so important for doctors to be... I don't, do you know what? I don't want to say better informed, but because I think the average person on the street needs to be better informed. I think doctors need to do better at their jobs. If I, as a lawyer, provided shoddy legal advice, I would be held accountable. Um, and, you know, we use the term endo warriors a lot because we have to fight all the time. But when it comes to doctors, we, we fight to get our case seen in the right way and then we die off and Gabrielle you're right it's because we're exhausted but I wish that we did more to hold doctors accountable making sure doctors are upskilled so that they have the right knowledge to pass on I think always linking endometriosis with periods is a real problem if anything for 2021 if we could just get rid of that then that would be a win in itself because it's so much more than that I think it's also that's also linked to the research issue because Heather Guadoni from the Center for Endometriosis Care in Atlanta, she, she says the f the reason we don't know much about endometriosis is because it's been linked to menstruation for so long. This whole idea that's caused by retrograde menstruation, she says, is basically utter bullshit. Can I say that utter BS? Um, <laughs> and. We failed to advance our understanding of endometriosis because we've been so hung up on it being a disease of menstruation. We have to, like, put that idea in the bin. It's a whole system disease, chronic disease, and we need to start looking at it and treating it and thinking about it like that. And that's where research needs to go. That's such a good point. It's brilliant. Okay, I'm going to come on to my final question now. So this is something I ask all of my guests. Quite simply, I want to know what living well means to you. Oh, oh, that's such a difficult one. I think that's a difficult one for me because I'm, I'm trying to move towards the acceptance stage. So I think with a chronic condition, you, as everyone will know, you have the grief stage, which is letting go of the life that you thought that you would have. Um, and I'm still like moving into acceptance that endometriosis is a chronic condition and there isn't a cure for it. Um, and therefore, what does what does my life look like going forward? <laughs> Living well, my automatic response to that is, well, obviously pain free. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> but that's still not being um, in in acceptance. I think it would be if it's not pain-free it's in control because it's the loss of complete control I would love to be able to with certainty with certainty know how I can navigate each day so despite taking tablets throughout this like I had like the pain kick in and flare up and I was like oh god I'd love to know that when I've done my prep when I've taken the medicine when I've used the hot water bottle when I've rubbed the balms when I've drank the turmeric tea that tastes like crap when I've done all of these remedies that I can <laughs> sit through a one and a half hour session and be okay so that would be good that's what living well looks like for me 
I love, I absolutely love that um, you brought up the stages of, of grieving and getting towards acceptance in terms of the idea of living well, because I think about that all the time. And it wouldn't have occurred to me just now if you didn't bring it up. So thank you. Because when you think about living well, you so often try and think about symptoms or trying to think about being more well somehow. But actually, I'm working so much on the idea of living well, actually being, accepting that I can't control those things at the moment. Um, And I think living well is waking up and being able to value whatever I can do on any given day and have people around me that value that in me as well. So I think living well is about feeling believed, feeling like there are people around me who understand and empathise and and value me for whatever I can do in a certain day and for that understanding to extend to myself as well, that I can get to a point where, and I'm, I'm way off this, just so I'm not saying that I can do this, I definitely can't, but getting to a point where I can have some compassion for myself and have some understanding for for where I'm at and not keep punishing myself every day. That's such a good point, Um, Shia. If you figure that Um, out, please let us know. because Thank you. I'll get back to you. (laughs) I would love to know how to do that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that just really um, took my breath away when you said that because, yeah, as Fiona said, the, the grieving stage for me was quite hard. It actually took a lot longer than I thought it would. And acceptance is never ending. And part of the acceptance is, yeah, going easy on myself. I mean, just not feeling like I'm constantly letting other people down because I'm doing something good for myself. Like, you know, there's just this 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 feeling that because you've got something wrong with you, you have to work harder and you have to prove yourself constantly. And no one puts that on me except for me. <laughs> but I just want to be able to say no to things and not feel guilty. And um, I don't know why it's so hard. I don't know why I always set little tests for myself. I want to stop doing that. I want to just you know, if I need to spend a day on the sofa with my hot water bottle, not feel bad about it. Mm. Yeah. Here, here. That's living well to me, spending a guilt-free day on the sofa with a hot water bottle. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I can totally relate. It's funny because I ask everyone this and for me I'm still trying to figure out what living well looks like that life isn't always kind of exactly what you planned or what you thought it was, but that there are still some really sweet moments and there are, there is joy to be found, you know, that that's definitely allowed me, I suppose, to change my perspective on life and what life is and what that should look like and unpick a lot of things that I thought I should do or I had to do or that women are meant to do or look like or whatever. So I suppose in that way, it's allowed me to liberate myself from from certain constraints. I think that's what it, that's what living well means to me now. Um, and I think that's about it. I think we're going to leave it there. Um, thank you all so so much for joining me today. What an thank incredible conversation! Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me to be part of such an amazing panel. I really feel honoured to be here. Yeah, so do I. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you all so much. So good to see you all. Bye, everyone. Bye. 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 And that's it for the final episode of this series. Time has really flown by. Thank you so, so much for supporting and for listening this far. We've loved receiving your comments and emails. It's been an absolute blast and a total privilege being able to tell these stories. If you missed any of our previous episodes, do go back and have a listen and let me know which one was your favourite. I would love to hear. You can get us on chronic at huffpost.com or you can tweet me at Lucy Pasha. We hope to bring you more episodes sometime next year. But for now, I'll leave. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.